The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So this is the last of the five talks on suffering, on dukkha. That's part of um, a series of talks on the Four Noble Truths. And the First Noble Truth, topic of this week, in the full formulation of it, it's called the Noble Truth of Suffering. In the earliest formulation of this, it was an insight described by under, uh, one understands this is suffering. And this word this, I think, is very important because it's always it's specific. It's not a generalized uh, view, generalized theory, generalized principles about life when it's an insight. This is suffering. This is unease. This is dis-ease. This is stress. This is painful. Whatever way we want to translate the word dukkha, this is dukkha. And so it's grounded in something specific as opposed to the generalization that um, uh, life is suffering. That's a principle or a general, you know. But to it's, you know, in the moment-to-moment experience, when there is dukkha, this is it, to recognize it. And it might seem like a drag to really pay attention to our suffering, our pain, our stress. And it is a little bit. It's, you know, it's painful. uh, Painful things are painful. But um, there's a way in which paying careful attention to it and learning how to attend to it wisely, with ease, with mindfulness, is a path to the freedom from suffering, to the end of it. That's not possible if we simply escape it or ignore it. That leaves us more on the surface of life. But there's an art, a way in which practice takes us deep into our our life, deep, deep into it, to the other side of our dis-ease, our unease, that we have our dukkha. And one of the things the Buddha said, as I talked about yesterday, is that, um, kind of he said that whatever is impermanent, whatever is inconstant and changing, is suffering, is dukkha. And it is painful. But is it painful because in and of itself? Or is it where we could see or experience pain? In the famous, most famous uh, explanation of the Four Noble Truths, uh, the Buddha lays out this is the noble truth of, the, of suffering. And he asks the question, what is suffering? What is painful? What is dukkha? And uh, the way I hear this question is, <clears throat> uh, um, is more like, the what is more like, <clears throat> um, 
where do we find dukkha? What what is the experience? Where is what what thing? When there's dukkha, where is it? Where is it found? In what is it? So the answer <clears throat> is rather elaborate in the full elaboration of these this. And I'll talk more about the full elaboration that um, as we go through these weeks. Um, but it no longer becomes the direct insight into the immediacy of dukkha. But now we're going into a... a uh, the full elaboration is a larger explanation, kind of an overview or a generalization of sorts. And so we have to be very careful not to get lost in the generalization if what we're do, trying to do is to practice with the, speci- with the speci- specificity of our life, the details of our life. But there is this wider elaboration. And I'll use the word dukkha, uh, a Pali word rather than translating it, so as I've said, it can mean suffering, stress, unsatisfactoriness. Literally, it means painful. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Illness is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Sorrow or grief, sadness, pain, distress, and... Um, and despair are dukkha. Association with what is unloved, the unbeloved, is dukkha. Separation from the loved is dukkha. Not getting what is wanted is dukkha. In short, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. In short, or in conclusion, for example, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. And this last statement is, uh, is a powerful statement about how widespread and total the experience of dukkha can be in human life. And it has to do with these things called the five aggregates. And when people explain this, it's often treat these aggregates funny word in English, as, um, as a kind of tech, to have technical meaning. But at its heart, these word, it's a playing on metaphors. And it's, uh, the Buddha often uses metaphors to teach. And metaphors have a very different uh, role in our lives than technical explanations that kind of don't want to define technically what something is. Metaphors are evocative. They touch into our imagination. And at, through the imagination, maybe even to our emotional life. And it gives us maybe a, a, a visceral sense or experience or association with what's being taught. So it's a much bigger, wider kind of participation in the teaching than if just memorizing a technical definition of something. So the metaphor, that uh, one of the central metaphors that Buddha talks about is that of fire. And uh, this dukkha, whatever that might be, is sometimes seen as a fire that's burning us. And uh, 
we are burning. The world is burning in a certain way. It's burning with a fire, and there's three primary fires that are burning. It's, uh, it's burning with a fire of greed, the fire of hatred, and the fire of delusion or confusion or bewilderment. That uh, these, these fires hurt. These fires are singeing people. And sometimes it's just a little singe. Sometimes it's full-blown, um, you know, forest fire where it's, you know, consumed with a volcano that we experience within. It can be quite strong, and the fire can really uh, create deep scars in our hearts and our minds, this suffering, this dukkha that we have. And so if you look around the world, the world is on fire. There's so much suffering, there's so much pain, there's so much distress, there's so much stress that people are living under. Uh, Now here in the United States, they say that one in five children are now living in hunger. Normally, before the uh, COVID-19 era, it was something like one in 10, still, to me, astronomically high. But so many people have lost their work now. And so there's a certain kind of fire, the fire of hungry bellies, children. It's so painful that this should be the case. So the t- we're talking about this fire, the fires that come from greed, hatred, and delusion. That's what he's, Buddha's primarily focusing on. And so when the Buddha t- keeps using the word suffering over and over again, it's very closely associated with these very sometimes powerful mental attitudes, motivations, uh, mental states of greed, hatred, and delusion which when very compulsive and very strong are like fires that will destroy lives. So that's the metaphor for suffering is fire. Fire, uh, uh, you know, especially in the time of the Buddha, um, in the household fires, fires, you know, keeping people warm, uh, were dependent on firewood and uh, a bundle of, of wood, a cord of wood. The word for a cord of wood or a bundle of wood or a branch, a stick of wood, is like a trunk of a tree uh, branch, is kanda, K-H-A-N-D-A. And that is the word that somehow ended up into Buddhist English, translated as aggregate. It uh, sometimes just means a bundle of something, a collection of something, but it specifically also means a piece of wood or a bundle of wood. And that's the, fu- the, fu- that's the fuel or the basis upon which the fire grows. The next uh, part of this metaphor is the word um, upadana, which can mean clinging. So the five aggregates of clinging, um, uh, upadana also means of fuel. Uh, the f- so the kan does this, these bundles of wood are fuel, or the gasoline we put on the wood so it really burns is the fuel. And so this combination of there's the firewood, there's the fuel, and then there's a the fire that comes from it. And, um, and this using uh, the same word 
to mean clinging and fire or fuel or fuel for the fire means that clinging is the fuel for the fire. Clinging is what fans the flames of our suffering. Clinging is both is the is what keeps it going. And so whenever there's a reactivity that has to do with some kind of clinging or then that's adding more fuel to the fire. And but what do we cling to? So what's the clinging? You know, clinging requires something that we're clinging to. And um, it's these kundas, it's these bundles of stuff, this mass of wood. There's always something that we're clinging to. And what we're clinging to are these five aggregates, these five bundles, these five cords of wood. And when the Buddha says, in short, in summarize, what is this suffering? He's saying, it's these five uh, bundles of clinging. It's these five bunches of wood that are the fuel for the fire. That's where the fire is. The fire is in the clinging. And what's important about this is that, um, that the suffering he's talking about here and uh, the ill, the the stress, the painfulness he's talking about here, is the pain or the suffering that comes from clinging, upadana. This is a bit of a tautology. What's the suffering that um, uh, uh, that the Buddha is talking about? It's not everything we might in English call as being painful or being suffering, but it's a suffering that arises from clinging. Whenever there's clinging, whenever there's craving, there will be suffering. Every time maybe some of us say, you know, I'm suffering, it might not involve clinging. But what the Buddha is addressing is that suffering that arises with the clinging. And clinging hurts. If you cling, if you clench your fist for a long time, it'll hurt. The release of that cl- that that clenching is freedom for the fist. So, um, so this kind of understanding now that the world of suffering, the world of impermanence we're looking at, is the world of what we cling to, and if we cling to what's impermanent. In what's constant, what's flowing, then um, we will suffer. If we're in a river, standing in a river, and we're trying to stop the river, it's not going to work. If we try to take a fist of full of water and hold it in our hand, it's not going to work. If we try to move the river by pushing against the bank and have it go flow in a different direction, it's not going to work. Uh, fighting the, uh, or resisting or clinging to the river doesn't really work. If you take a bucket of water and pick up a bucket full of water and go back to town and say, look, I have the river in the bucket, that's silly. We have water in the bucket, but we don't have the river. Clinging to the river of life that's changing is guaranteed to be a source of stress, of be painful. The alternative is to see this world of impermanence and change and constancy 
to relate to it in a different way, in a new way, so that the, the changing world becomes the medicine for our life, not the illness or not the, the poison or something, the fire. The five aggregates, the five bundles of who we are, our body, our feelings, our perceptions, our mental formations and our consciousness are constantly changing, unfolding phenomena. And if we cling to it, we will suffer. But if we allow the psychosomatic ways in which we experience and see ourselves to just flow and move, and then we can find our ease. Then we can find our freedom. So, and this is kind of some of the tasks that uh, of the second noble truth, which will start again on Monday. Uh, the second noble truth. We go deeper into this world of suffering and and how it arises and how to find freedom. And in a few minutes, uh, in a minute or so, uh, I'll take some questions if you'd like. I'll stay here for a little while, and it's Friday, so it's nice to have a little uh, back and forth. And uh, for those of you who are like the 7 a.m. time to sit, um, Nikki Mirgafori, one of the teachers here at Insight Meditation Center, is going to offer a, a, a 7 a.m. sitting tomorrow morning. I think it's a, a she teaches happy hours, so I think she's going to probably do some kind of loving-kindness practice, but... I'm not sure, but uh, she's a great teacher and you have some continuity into Saturday if you want. Uh, and that'll be on Zoom rather than on YouTube. So you have to go on IMC's uh, calendar to find your way with that. So we'll see what kind of questions you might have. And um, Nice, nice messages coming in. Thank you. When one comes to the end of suffering, are the outward causes of suffering still present, but one's relationship to them has changed? Does it end if clinging ends? It's a good question. Uh, Maybe it's useful to make a distinction uh, for the purposes of understanding the Buddha's teachings between causes and conditions. That um, the conditions for suffering are in the world. Um, but the primary cause, if we use the word cause, that we're interested in as practitioners, and I want to emphasize this word as practitioners, if we're really walking the path to try to end, come to the end of suffering, at that time, in that context, in those circumstances, then the direction of atten- attention is not to the conditions outside, but rather to the contribution we make to our suffering. 
And this is a very mature, very uh, strong, courageous thing to do. There's definitely, in conventional language, causes for suffering in the external world. And, um, and so we don't want to deny that. We don't want to stop you know, taking care of that in their proper way. But if we want to set our heart at ease in this deep, liberated way that the Buddha emphasized, at that time we turn around and we really look, what is my contribution to it? And so we would say that the conditions for suffering are external. The cause for it is in our own hearts, in our own clinging. Um, so as the person says here, um, yes, so it's our relationship that changes. We're no longer relating with clinging or we're relating with uh, openness and ease with it. Uh, and then perhaps we can be wiser. Um, so if clinging ends, the suffering that we contribute, our contribution to our pain, our difficulty, ends as well. And since so much, it's such a very, very deep way, some of the deepest existential suffering we have arises from clinging with clinging. Uh, it's phenomenal to go through this process of coming to the end of clinging. Let's see. Even when I can connect with deep ease, there's some part of me that's on guard, like a sentinel, that can't seem to let go. How to practice with this? Uh, you want to befriend the sentinel. You want to uh, sit down next to your sentinel, next to that guard, and accompany it and listen to it and feel it and get to know it. Spend time with it. Don't be in a hurry to stop being on guard. Really kind of bring easeful, kind, loving attention to it and really get to know it. Listen to it. Uh, hear what it's, hear in a sense, what it's really afraid of. And, um, and maybe that fear that underlies the sentinel, that needs your love. Even when I can connect with deep ease, there's some part of me that's on, oh, that's the one I just read. Oops. What's the e difference when, between ease and complacency? Complacency, if you're mindful and really mindful and really attentive to it, really sensitive and can feel and tune into what that's like, will have some kind of stress, dis-ease, pain, suffering as part of it. It doesn't feel good to be complacent. There is a kind of resistance, a kind of shutting down, a kind of narrowing or constriction. Ease has the opposite. Ease has a sense of openness, sense of possibility, a sense of no resistance to what's going on. Um, ease can come with a lot of care and attention. Uh, complacency is, you know, so what? You know, it doesn't matter, kind of. Ease uh, just means that our care, and it does matter, uh, is done in a... In a um, 
peaceful way. Oh, wrong way. Ease made it much easier to be where the hindrances. Great, fantastic. I have stopped reading, watching all news because my perceptions and mental formations get activated. Must I continue to be without these current events in order to maintain some kind of serenity? Uh, maybe for the time being you need to do that. Maybe eventually you don't. But, um, you know, there's good reason to lose your serenity and to be agitated by the news because a lot of it is written in order to arouse emotions, in order to make people excited. So it's kind of a genre of writing which is trying to get us to buy newspapers and get excited and and believe what's being said, all kinds of things. Uh, It is good to have some sense of what's happening in the world And so there are places you can go to read the news that uh, is laid out much more, uh, with much much less of an emotional charge than some of the major news outlets does. And um, so I like to say that, um, you know, all the major news is also found in Wikipedia. Whether Wikipedia is less or more accurate than some of the newspapers, uh, I tend to think it's more balanced because that's what they're trying to do. And... um, and uh, anyway, there, there's very little emotional charge in Wikipedia. So you can read it there. The other thing that's good with the news is, um, you know, most news is old. It's not things haven't changed so much in the millennia, really, at the heart of, of it all. It's um, not necessary to know the news when it's new. It isn't useful to be well-informed, but you don't have to be up-to-date by the minute or even by the day. Um, I found it uh, very useful sometimes I haven't done it for some years now, but I always was, uh, was time I would regularly read the news a day or two or three late. And, uh, and I saw that my relationship to the news changed when I knew it wasn't the cutting edge and up to date. So you might just kind of follow behind the news for a day or two and, and uh, maybe you'll have a whole different, uh, it won't take away your serenity so much. It's meaningful for me to know that aggregates are translated from bundle of wood. I feel I can understand more clearly about the five aggregates now. Great. Happy to hear that. Um, Maybe the risk of complicating things a little bit more. Um, uh, There's a strong tendency in, in many teachers and scholars who talk, teach, talk about Buddhism to treat the five aggregates as the Buddha's way. So they'll say, the Buddha says there's no self, but what's the self are these five uh, processes, five activities called the five aggregates. That's what defines the human being. And that's a very common statement. Um, however, if you go back and read the teachings of the Buddha, he never says it that way. He only says that these five bundles, that they are the what people get attached to when they cling. He doesn't claim that those five aggregates as a total is what makes up the human being. He actually never really wants to define the human being in its totality. 
He just wants people to be free. And the focus is on these are the things people tend to cling to, these concepts, these ideas, this particular way of dividing up the human being. Um, and there's other ways that he divides up the human being that um, he doesn't see as a source of, of suffering, as what we cling to so much. And oddly enough, uh, he uses the word citta for the mind and kaya for the body. And this distinction, but these, if you really look and see what he, how he talks about the mind and the body, uh, this citta and kaya, it, that also is not the, the, what the person is. Rather, citta and kaya are how the mind constructs its experience of body and mind. And there's a way in which that's constructed that is not a problem. And uh, citta is never seen to be suffering. The citta is suffering uh, the way that the five aggregates of clinging are. So if we generalize and see the five aggregates of clinging, the five bundles, to be everything we are as a human being, then uh, it lends itself to kind of all kinds of complicated questions about, well, if they drop away, if we don't cling to them, who are we? Um, uh, it's, uh, the five aggregates are a particular thing. They're, they define what we cling to, not who we are. Okay, maybe. Okay, well, I think that um, it's eight o'clock and I actually have another teaching to do, um, teaching a retreat this week, uh, online retreat and in 15 minutes, I'm supposed to be giving instructions there. So I think it would be greater ease for me to stop now and, and get ready for the next. Thank you for this week and thank you for our time together. And I look forward to uh, next week when we go through the second uh, noble truth. Thank you.